Welcome to this edition of This Is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. This edition is sponsored by the Tricord Group, leading successful relationship constructs for over 25 years, and VIM, helping the architecture and design disciplines design, deliver, and operate better buildings for a better world. Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio today, I'm joined by three magnificent research leaders from across the built environment industry. Flavia Gray is the head of research for ZGF Architects. Upali Nanda is the managing principal of firmwide research at HKS. And Liz Vandermark is the firmwide leader of research for Smith Group. It's really great to have you all three in the studio with me today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm very excited to get to talk to all of you today. Each of you are leading significant research practices in three pretty large firms. One of the things that I is it, I have this wonderful perspective of at Design Intelligence, we get to look across literally hundreds of firms around the world, and we get to see how dollars are being invested, what the outcome of those invested dollars are. We're getting to watch it, how technology is being used and used or not used accordingly across so many practices we're talking about in architecture, engineering, and construction across the built environment. And so something that has been very much in our focus at Design Intelligence is the state of practice-based research and finding out how it's really going out there and how is research being performed by firms in a dedicated and focused way being applied into design programs, into uh, client-based projects, and frankly, into informing and educating ourselves on how to be better at the work that we do. And um, as we wander through this topic today, one of the things that I was hoping that you might have contemplated was the idea of open source collaborative research across industry. And how are we seeing that? Are we seeing authentic operations and applications of open source collaborative research? Or do we see more often than not, we're heads down doing our stuff within our firms? And um, how would you respond to that? How about I start with you, Flavia? Any insights on that point? Yeah, it's a topic that I'm very interested in. I've been looking at some of the projects that we have developed within our firm. And I think by the nature of our work, a lot of the research that we do is very project focused. And there's some really great tools that we have developed that have grown to be, you know, tools that the industry uses that we've shared publicly and they're open source, um, both for like carbon life cycle assessment to LARC, which is to do daylight simulations, etc. And one of the things that I have noticed is that there is no real infrastructure for the upkeep of these types of tools. And so it ends up being sort of a, just a one-way communication. And I feel like we're lacking the infrastructure in order to create a better communication process and a better feedback process within the industry in order to really be able to upkeep these types of tools. And because we're not 
about technology companies and we're not really driven about the tools, but about how we implement them. I feel like that's a gap that we need to close. Um, and just how do we establish that need and how can we get the you know value across for our companies that this type of infrastructure would bring a lot of value and the types of tools and how much we can all grow them together. This is such a critical point that you're bringing out because incubating new tools that might have a a one-time application is is really not what we're after, is it? We're we're really trying to find things that have life cycle and ability to maintain and extend upon as we use and iterate upon them. Uh, Yupali, we've discussed this very same thing about the development of tools in the past. Uh, some comments about what Flavia just shared. I couldn't agree more. I think she is spot on. Um, knowledge is interesting, right? Knowledge gains power when it's shared, and it loses power when you try to keep it proprietary. So we do need to share knowledge. I think there is the appetite for it. I think Clavia is spot on that we are lacking the infrastructure and a truly robust knowledge ecosystem where there is incentive to share because when all of different pieces, different parts, different organizations are sharing, they're benefiting from a larger whole. So it isn't really an issue of intent. I think it's an issue of just having the right channels, infrastructures, and systems in place to do that. Liz, how would you respond? It's hard to really add much more to that, except that the infrastructure that is needed is, um, is are there databases. I mean, we, we need to be able to have a place where you can store this kind of information that is generating perhaps answers for certain research questions, but then could be mined for other research questions. And it's really, there are bits and pieces of it out there, but they're very sporadic and unconnected to each other. I, I think one of the examples that I look back to, and they just redid the database, was the 2030 data um, that the AA manages. And that data is just a small slice of the kind of project data that we're trying to collect in our large firms, but that would really benefit from sharing across all of the firms and leveraged maybe even to the smaller firms so that we could begin to have the data to back up, the evidence to back up some of our design moves. So we've talked about infrastructure already being missing and in, in, in place to, to maintain, sustain, develop, iterate, improve upon what the things we are discovering. Infrastructure is a big word, and Liz just brought up one component of infrastructure, which may be a database. Uh, what are perhaps, Yupali, when you describe infrastructure around this space, what might be some of the components and pieces that make up a holistic infrastructure? I'm going to step back a little bit, too, on that question, Dave, that uh, one of the things we also want to have clear definition around are the motivations and motivators of investing in something like that. And I think that value proposition is not clear. Like all of us, especially those in research positions, glimpse at the value. We see the bits and pieces that are moving around. But it's a service industry that is client responsive, and there is a huge lack in motivation because we don't do huge amounts of R&D for many, many years to come up with one signature product that can then go to market, right? That's just not how our profession works. And because of that, there's kind of that inherent issue of what is the motivation and what kind of infrastructure do we need for that type of motivation? And based on that, I would say one of those very basic things from a knowledge perspective that we need are clear benchmarks, the 
issue of not having benchmarks in our industry, even within individual firms and then across the industry, that's a huge one because you can't build intelligent tools. You cannot build predictive tools. If you don't have intelligence going in, that means industry-wide standards, industry-wide benchmarks, industry-wide practices need to have consistency. I completely agree. I think a big part of the issue that really is a hindrance to this type of development is exactly what Upali was saying. This is not our business. This is not what we're selling to the clients. And this is, we have to really showcase what the value is because there's a lot of overhead that would come to developing some of these systems and some of this work. And so does that come from an individual company putting in money in this, especially in this world where, you know, we're trying to be as lean as possible and to make sure that we're keeping our resources as efficient as possible so that we can provide the ultimate value to our clients. And so how do we create that transparency of how, you know, how do we show our teams the value that these tools could provide in changing the way that we work every day, both for our process, for our products, and without showcasing that value, it's hard to get that momentum going in order to set up the infrastructure needed. So back to my original question, what makes up the infrastructure of this knowledge sharing dynamic we've just been discussing? So what I was talking about, for example, there's the development of the tools themselves is sometimes what we're doing in-house. I agree with the databases in order to store the data. And so, for example, what Liz was saying with the 2030 data, that database is important, but also how do we access the database? How do we update that database? And so what are those processes as well from the way that we collect the data to begin with and making that an industry-wide standard, just like Upali was saying, to the upkeep of that data, making sure that it's always up to date, making sure that it's always clean, that it's clear, to how do we access it as well? So what are those front-end systems and the ways that we visualize that data, that we can share that data, depending on what it is, you know, in some cases for some of these tools that are not just the the data that we're saving, but maybe for simulation tools or maybe calculators that we do for material health or other things, you know, how are we saving that software? You know, in the software industry, it's very common to have, for example, a GitHub somewhere where the code is saved so that people can come and they can access it. There's a clear track of who is editing the software, what are the changes that they're making, but someone has to be also ultimately responsible to make sure that whatever is added by other people is actually providing more value, that it's actually going to work. And so there's no changes that are going to cause damage to the way that the, the software is working. And so someone has to spend the time to do that upkeep of where the data is saved and that it's continuously working. So interesting that we talk about this because we kind of immediately fell into a discussion around technology. And when I think of the infrastructure for knowledge sharing, it's actually not physical at all. It, it is somewhat to where Yupali was going is to first understand what is our philosophy of research. Are we approaching research in pursuit of uh, open-ended answers? Are we approaching research based on a hypothesis that we posit and then move forward to prove or disprove? Um, is our research more for educational purposes? Is it for self-informational purposes? Is it for value creation purposes? You can see where I'm going. There's so many facets to the philosophy of research. And how we define that and put that in place will set 
the kind of the table for what other infrastructure needs to be put because they will from there it will define our collection of data through the work that we do. Um, it's interesting because when we think about data, we think of collecting data, categorizing data, normalizing data, then curating data to then be able to question the data. And that's where we get really excited. It's only after we've done all that hard work of data management do we finally get to this place of being able to question the data by applied AI or machine learning in a, in a more advanced way or just the, the good old stuff of diving into the data in the old way. And so there's a bunch of infrastructure that goes in place. And I, and I think so often that research initiatives are so pressured based upon budgets and time and you having to quickly prove your value that we are unable to sit back and contemplate what is our approach and our philosophy that will set our infrastructure in place from which we can be much more effective in the long run. Any responses to that? Yeah. I think the data is so interesting because one of the things that we've done in the firm is that we have a lot of project data, which is fairly static and small in size, but we've started working with sensor data, which just explodes. (laughs) There's so much data that you have to manage. And so a lot of the SQL databases that we've used to store and relate our project knowledge, it just doesn't work at the scale of streaming data. And so trying to figure out what the different scales are has also opened up a new awareness of how, and you go back to philosophy of research, at the end of the day, we're, we're trying to understand the relationship of people and space and describe it in ways that we can mine patterns out of it. And so if we can and always ask people how they occupy space, what their satisfaction is, you know, are they are they comfortable? But we can also meter, we can track, we can monitor the environment to see what kind of impact they have on it and then figure out ways of understanding occupancy. So there's so many more ways that we can describe the built environment and not in terms of averages over time, but at the minute or even the second. And so in this really radically changing world, I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about research is the idea of repeated instruments, seeing how things are changing over time. And then that feedback loop, you ask why research, helps inform design talk, design discussions, design conversations about what's possible. Uh, So it it helps kind of empower those and and enrich those conversations so that we can get out of our kind of lived experience and into a much more future-looking way of practicing. Mm, Fantastic. I agree. I mean, I think it's a very data-saturated world. And one of the biggest uh, values of research is reminding us that you need the clarity in the question first. And the clarity of the research question determines whether you're going to be exploratory or confirmatory, whether you're going to be speculative or truly applied. And there is all these spectrums of research that in a profession like architecture that is so complex, the scale of research questions we touch are super diverse. And now start compounding that with what Liz was saying is not only are the questions we face super, super, super complex and diverse, now the kind of data we have to collate, triangulate, and bring together 
has exploded. So the ability to have repeated measures, ability to have validated tools, that's become really challenging because it's possible to get data, but what is not clear is the definition of the data, the hygiene around that data. Am am I really getting the best possible data for that? Am I correlating it to other points in the right way? Do I have the right expertise on board? And all of that comes back to the clarity of the question that we have and how we scope it. Uh, So to your initial prompt, Dave, I think we do have a challenge because our profession is inherently complex. And every single typology deals with some really, really complex research questions within it. And so it becomes that vast distance between the questions we have to answer as a practice, especially as we start getting into sector-specific, typology-specific questions, and the amount of bandwidth that we have. And then you add to that the layer of the extensive amount of data that we now have access to. And that's the challenge that we're all navigating. So I don't see how that can happen without a coalition structure. Now, I am such a, a major proponent of this that we, that we must open this up, that as smart as all three of you are, you're so wickedly smart, as we'd say up in New England, each of you individually, what would be the synergistic power if the three of you openly shared your findings at the micro and the macro level with each other in an open forum, just the three of you, what exponential effect of understanding would come out of that? And of course, we know what would happen. It would just be unbelievable. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to have this deep and meaningful conversation with a woman that has been one of the chief scientists in the world over time in biotech in the biotech industry. And we had this wonderful discussion about how in the world did we get a vaccine out in a year when it used to take literally years to get vaccines developed. And it was most interesting. Her response was not what I was expecting. She said, first of all, the best innovation happens in small teams, not in large teams. So as we've watched this for many years, that that the the more defined and and contained the team is, the more power in innovation and agility. But when we open that up to our first breakthroughs and make our findings available to all the other teams, there is this exponential effect that occurs. And of course, that's what we saw. The companies that had that created the original vaccines that are now being used by AstraZeneca or the Moderna group and some of these were really developed by relatively very small teams and then turned inside out to be able to scale at a macro level the way that they're doing today. It was it was really interesting. And so it's a combination of agility and collaboration, this transparency with one another. And and I said, well, that you know, that seems to me to be so uh, so wonderful. But weren't there competitive constraints, you know? I mean, these pharma companies are pretty tough with each other trying to go to market. And she laughed and she said, honestly, it's not because when we were able to openly share, we all got to market quickly and we were all making unbelievable amount of income back as a result of that. As a matter of fact, the exponential factor of understanding has resulted in an exponential economic return, which is is sometimes um, counterintuitive, certainly in our industry 
where we live in these kind of myopic bubbles thinking that we we have to create the secret sauce and it's our secret sauce and boy that's going to give us the competitive advantage when just maybe it would be the opposite i really like that example dave and i appreciate the point about agility and collaboration trying to do a lot in large groups simultaneously can become impossible but for example on the three of us if i know liz's team is working on something and favia's team is working on something and our team is working on something else then it helps us all focus on the things we can really dig down deep in and then share and get a peer review within people we respect who are in the industry who can really understand the same concerns and that works great because then instead of having 10 things on my plate i have two things on my plate because i know two things are on another collaborating research department's plate and so on and so forth so that model of having coalitions not necessarily collaborations it's very distinct coalition means every group is working and working to the top of their license in the best possible way with really focused time and resources and direction but a sharing at the right time with the right team so that no work is duplicated it's almost like intellectual sustainability if you will i really like that that distinction of coalition and collaboration flavia what do you say about all this so it also opens up the idea of the access to talent that you have because you don't necessarily have you know the best people in the world for a specific problem and one of the things that i was reading is was also the role of data around covid-19 and how having it be open source and available and lots of people were able to jump in and analyze it and visualize it and make sense of it it also enabled the people who are superstars and who have really great skills and talent to work on that data set and contribute which might not have had access if the data had been uniquely used by the pharma companies and so by making it open you also open yourself to having talent that you weren't even aware of and especially now in this current world of distributed labor and really rethinking about how people can work and collaborate together you know it opens up to a lot more opportunities and so i think it goes exactly hand in hand with what upali was saying how can we each one of us leverage our own individual skills so that together we can solve a even better problem so so let's play with this idea of coalition and collaboration Let us pretend that the three of you were given carte blanche to make this decision. You could make any decision you wanted to make about how you would do research going forward in your three organizations. Uh Liz, how would you do that? Would you invite these two friends into this? Would you say I'll invite them in after I get so far? Um you know, I you know, these are big questions because this is not normal. within our industry how how would you approach this yeah it's it's funny you said secret sauce i, I think we think the secret sauce is the wrong thing um i i really feel like architecture is about socially constructed meaning and so it's our interaction with our clients 
walking them through the process, figuring out what the problem is, understanding what can be brought to bear on the solution. And what can be brought to bear on the solution, that's what we should be sharing. So it's the design insight, it's the research findings, it's the research data. I'm amazed on the computation side, uh, how many different tools are being developed in Grasshopper and in other applications, all with the same background. People are innovating in this space based on a question they have to have answered or a visualization they have to do. So I feel, and they're all winning, you know, it's not a zero sum game. So I, I really, I really do feel like a lot gets lost in translation. We need to, I go back to something that Pali said, which was that that we need standards. You have to decide what the measures are. You have to define the data architecture. You have to figure out what the relationships are that are that are give valid um, kind of insight. And uh, and if we can do that as a, and we can kind of tame the stuff that we don't need to invent, then we can really use the data and the information that's being shared to uh, to come up with even more amazing solutions given the constraints that we're trying to design with and then test them. And it's always better when multiple firms are testing the same kinds of buildings um, because it starts to then generate some patterns that might actually be more normalized, for example. How do we get to industry standards for our research? I I love the idea of a coalition. I I think it's absolutely kind of breaks some of the fetters off of collaboration. And I think we all have to decide that that um, and I say this because I actually think that this, all of us understand this, but the data really matters, and we are not trained as architects to work with data, um, and uh, nor to understand how data represents larger constructs. And so I think uh, as architects, we have to kind of step up our game and understand that research matters um, and we have to invest in this infrastructure. And I, I feel like individual firms, I know we are as a, as a firm and I know that a lot of other large firms are investing in it, but I think that can only take us so far. I, I really do feel like we need to have a clearinghouse. We need to have a, a central place where we can we can have at least this, this ground set of data, this source of truth that then we can riff off of um, in both on the design side as well as developing better research questions. Wow, it's fantastic. Are we are we really competitors in our research or are we competitors in our design work? One of the things that I learned in, in my PhD program was that you never start off from scratch. You always start off by entering into a conversation. Um, and the conversation has already been going on, and so you have to figure out where the gaps are and where you're going. So I would say we're not competitors in our research. And actually, to be honest, we're not even competitors in the design to, to say, because the stuff that gets out there, then, you know, you're going to be inventing on top of it, and you're going to be changing it and radically shifting what it was that was possible before. So. I feel I feel like we can do more collaboratively, and and the vaccine model that you brought up is is a fantastic case in point. I actually was going to agree with you, Liz. I think that's going to be a very long coffee whenever we manage to get together for it. <laughs> so, but I I thought it was really nice when what you said was uh, architecture and the service of architecture is around socially constructed meaning. And what we bring to the solution is our research. So how can that be a competitor? I feel like I would have a better conversation with the client if I got them the most relevant research, even if it didn't come from me. 
that makes me a better architect yes. for whatever future that they are trying to build. So I think this this idea of a knowledge ecosystem where knowledge creation, knowledge curation, knowledge sharing is equally important is uh, is key because I don't want knowledge you've created. I want you to have the best knowledge to solve the problem and push the boundary for wherever we are and whatever problem we are facing. Hmm. And, and sometimes it can go, you know, it, it can be... Uh, a double-edged sword, because if you want to push your research, you're doing the client a disfavor, if that's a word, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to push your knowledge. You want to push the right knowledge because you're engaging with them in the problem construction. Um, and to your earlier prompt then, Dave, when you said, how do you distribute that? I think you you divide it up into thirds. You take a third and really invest in the coalition-based work where you identify early on that this problem is too big and too hairy and me doing it alone will be a disservice to the problem. You take another third that is more about nimble, agile, context-responsive research that needs to be done in every project. And that's required because our projects are our incubators in so many ways. And I think the last third is where you start focusing on the things within the kind of practice you have, within the kind of resources you have that is worth really digging deep and owning. Mm. That's that's fantastic. One of my favorite quotes is that today we can see farther than ever beyond because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And so there's all of this great research and there's all of this great work that has come before us that's allowing us to do our jobs and it's allowing us to learn. And I feel like there's a lot of knowledge generation, but I feel what we're lagging as an industry is in the actually taking that knowledge and those you know, incubation within a project that Upali was talking about and transforming that into our design process. So how is it actually changing our design process long-term and what is being absorbed in something that becomes part of our everyday work versus just a case study in one project and it just worked for that one project. Um, And I think by sharing this knowledge and especially as you're saying as how, you know, can we leverage each one of our skills? Like that's what I'm really excited about is about applying the research and making sure that it's going to help us do our work better every day, both in our processes, but also in the products that we're developing. Mm. Um, so often research organizations within firms are considered overhead. Uh, they're an expense line as opposed to a profit center. How can we get research into a billable position, not just to get it billable, but to actually present to clients the value that's there. How do we convince intelligent buyers, um, owners, investors, that their first spin should be on research? Some thoughts on this? I don't know if you've ever seen that ROI diagram of the design cost versus the construction cost versus the business operating cost Mm -hmm. of a building. Mm-hmm. and how it goes from a golf ball to a basketball, the research cost is a fraction of the design cost that can make your design decisions better, that can make your construction decisions better, your operational decisions better, and your business operating costs better. So we have to be able to speak to that value proposition. And honestly, if we are in practice and are not doing applied research, then we are not doing what our core mandate is 
this feedback loop between applied research and deep dive research, uh, which can be fed by and feed into coalitions. That's the model we need because we deal with projects all the time, but there isn't time or protected time or resources to dig deep into every question. But if you think about it as a project, as an incubator, and you try something out and you can validate it, you can test it, you can challenge it, you give it back to a team that is doing a deeper dive on it, and that team can feed it into a coalition that is doing a multi-year project on it. Now we have a system that's sustainable. But if that first point of being that intersection with practice is not there, then it's a loss. And it's essential that applied research is seen not as an ad service, but as an enhanced service. I love that. Monetization is not for profit. It really is to be able to do better work, research and design. I think the illustration you're talking about is that we know by industry norm that the the cost of designing and building, constructing a building, is 10% of the total cost of the life cycle of the building. So you have a 90% cost to, to operate the building. You have 10% to design and construct the building. And you have a tiny bit of that, which is this research nucleus that could literally change the cost factors for the operation of the building if properly positioned as a value generator within the entire continuum of these deals. Um, Flavia, some thoughts on this idea? And there's the other perspective of when you look at it, you know, from our clients' eyes and their company and what value you're providing. Because then when you start to look at also what their costs are, yes, there's the maintenance and there's the facility itself that they need to, to work on. But most of their costs, you know, if we're talking about an office, it's all about the employees. And I think... You know, a lot of the research that we do is really thinking about the occupants of the buildings and how we can really enhance their everyday lives. And I think that is something that has really connected with some of our clients in understanding how through better understanding our space and the huge impact that it has on our everyday ability to focus, to relax, to create social connections, to be able to innovate, I think that value for them is non-negotiable because that's where their money is spent. And so any... Um, return that they can get on that investment in helping their people do better. That's why they're building these new offices. That's why they're building these new spaces. And so I think that becomes a really strong argument towards, you know, why do we care about the research and the impact that the building is going to have on their everyday operations? I really feel like there's a lot of truths that are, are coming out of this conversation and a lot of wonderful insight. I, I feel that increasingly architects and engineers in our company and, and I think even colleagues outside that I've interacted with are hungry for, for research insight and only beginning to understand what it means to invest in some of these projects as incubators. For example, I love that idea of a project as an incubator. And in some ways, we're talking about just restructuring the way we think about uh, the design process uh, with these feedback loops, both in the beginning and the end, 
and really enriching it. And, and perhaps we go back to something that you said earlier about technology being the key. I mean, we are improving our instruments for delivering work. We can recoup that time and perhaps do more with our projects as incubators and, and improve at the end of the day, our footprint on the world through all this work and our clients footprint on the world. So it's exciting. It's very exciting to be part of this sort of engine uh, and reconsidering some of these um, buildings that already are out there that can be reused uh, in ways that are meaningfully um, suited to their clients. Again, all informed by research that is has already been done and needs to be done both in practice and in the academic world. That's a, that's a fabulous uh, summary statement here toward the end. I tell you what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that the three of you would come back and join me in the studio again in the not-too-distant future. We might want to add another person or two to our conversation. Uh, as design intelligence is focused in a new future on research, and what does that mean to changing and altering and informing and empowering the built environment in a much more meaningful way than what we've seen even to date. And I think that we need to broaden this conversation. I think that what Yupali brought up might serve as the heart of that conversation, and that is, what is a functional uh, coalition around research that spans industry and allows an exponential value effect to occur? I want to thank you all three for being with me, and let's look forward to our next time together. I hope you'll accept my invitation. Thank you, Dave. Definitely. Let's do this again. I look forward to continuing this conversation. It'll be fun. Until next time, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of This is Design Intelligence, sponsored by the Tricord Group and Vim. The producer for This is Design Intelligence is Laura Spells. Sound engineering by Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.